Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've been looking at the life of Abram as we've started in Genesis 12. And we know for a fact that Abram's called the father of faith. And he, because he is the father of faith, he is also an example of what it means to have faith for all those who believe. Now, Abram certainly doesn't have a perfect life, and we've seen that even over the last few weeks. He's a fallen man, and yet we see of how the Lord is working in his life, and he is growing in his faith. Now, last week we saw of how Abram was tested once again with regards to the promise of the land. And there was conflict in the land this time because there was an abundance, because God had blessed him so much, as well as his nephew Lot, so much so that they couldn't be contained in the same place in the land of Canaan. And so there was a conflict that that arose between the two parties. And we saw of how Abram this time is thinking of the other, not thinking of taking care of himself. And he asked Lot to just decide for himself, take a pick of the land, choose any place, and you can have that. And we saw last week of how Lot looked down at the Jordan Valley, a place that looked like the Garden of Eden or much like the prosperous Egypt at the time. And he said he wanted that place, and they parted ways. And we saw at the end of it, of how God refreshed Abram by by his word of promise coming back to him, saying that all of the land of Canaan would be the forever portion of Abram and his descendants. And beyond that, God also reiterated to him that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth, that they would be so numerous. And we saw how Abram then settled at, at Hebron, at the Oaks of Mamre, and he built an altar to the Lord and worshipped the Lord for his faithfulness. Now this morning, as we come to Genesis 14, we are continuing on in Abram's life of faith, his journey of faith. We already saw how Abram's grown in his faith, particularly with regards to the land promise, and we are slowly transitioning to the promise of the seed. And, and this is like a transition uh, chapter as we move on to the promise of the seed. And really what we see here is of how God's promises and plan is now working in and through the life of Abram. And even gives a hint to what we are to expect of the coming ultimate promise seed. The portion that I read this morning is is the account 
of Abram's rescue of his nephew Lot. And it's really another story of redemption. And we will see, in some sense, how the plan of God and the purposes of God to restore a people is working out in and through this man, Abram. I've titled this morning's sermon as Abram Rescues Lot. And really, just uh, by way of outline, it's quite simple, just as we look at two different scenes. In verses 1 through 12, we will look at the background or the context And then in verses 13 through to 16, we'll look at the actual rescue. And we'll learn something of the faith of Abram as he's growing in his faith. And we'll learn something of God's plan and purposes and how we are to respond to him. So firstly, the the context. Let's look at the first few verses. Let me just read the first four verses. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedalaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Now, because of all the, the names and the uh, you know, places and locations, I'm going to do a, something a little bit different. I'm going to just bring up a map just behind us, if I can, the first map. Yeah, so as you see behind, you can see the map there and the the places that are marked in red. You see Ur of Chaldeans, that's where Abram was at first. Then God calls him out from there. So that's all the region of Babylonia. Then he moves up north to Haran, and he settles there for some time with his father Terah. And the region over here in the middle is the Arabian desert, which is why they have to make that journey up there. And then from Haran, he makes his way down to Uh, the land of Canaan, and that's all that region over there. And right at the bottom, Hebron and Shechem, that's all the southern part of the land of Canaan. So that's where Hebron, that's where Abram is right now. Now these kings that we are talking about is, if you just look at verse 1 and then look back at the map, you see Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now Shinar is uh, where it's written as Babylon right there. That's Babel, Babylon, all that the same. Remember the plains of Shinar is where the people went to build the Tower of Babel? So that's where Shinar is, where Babylon is. So that's Babylon there. Then you have uh, Kedaleoma, the king of Elam, so that you see on this side. Uh, and he seems to be the the leader of the four kings. And then there's two other places that are mentioned, title king of Goim. Goim just means nations. We don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere in that highlighted area. And then we also have 
uh, Arioch, king of Eleazar, which is also somewhere in that region. So that whole region there, that would be the Mesopotamian region. The land between the two rivers, between the Euphrates, that's below there, and the Tigris River on top. It's that region there and a little beyond up to Elam. It's the Mesopotamian region. And so if you look with regards to where it is with the land of Canaan or where Abram is, it's the eastern side, north and east. So these kings that are mentioned here, these kings are the kings of the Mesopotamian region. And these kings have formed a coalition. And really, Mesopotamia is, is, a, is a superpower at this time. In fact, if you read even world history, they would say that uh, the ancient uh, area of Mesopotamia was the seat of civilization. It is from this region, this, that whole region there, is where you had a lot of advancements and a lot of empires and a lot of civilizations came out of that whole entire region. And so really, whoever ruled that region during that time would be the superpowers of the day. And so these four kings of Mesopotamia, these four eastern kings, are the great rulers of the world at that time. There's nobody greater than them at this time. Now these eastern kings, these superpowers, have conquered the, the area of the Jordan Valley. Now can I get the next slide with the next map? So before you move there, so if you see the Dead Sea there, can we go back to the other map? So if you see right next to Hebron, that little inland space, that's where Dead Sea is. So that's now going to be blown up a bit more. Next map. So that's the Dead Sea right there. And so what you call as the Jordan Valley is that region around the Dead Sea over there. And that's the Jordan Valley region. And so most likely Sodom and Gomorrah and Bela, that Zoar, you can see all of that just uh, around there. They're, they're in small writing just under Amim. So that whole region, we're talking about the kings over there. Small little kings in the Jordan Valley. And what's interesting is, just as a side note, it says Bera king of Sodom and Bersha king of Gomorrah. Interestingly, Bera means in evil and Bersha means in wickedness. And it's really just pointing out to just the sin that is already there in Sodom and Gomorrah, so much so that even the king's names are associated with evil and wickedness. And so that's the region there. So you have Bera, uh, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela. Now what's happened is these, the superpower kings of the east up on, on top there, because they have conquered the kings, because they've conquered this Jordan Valley, these little kings in the Jordan Valley, they were forced to pay annual taxes to these eastern superlords. 
And so they would have to pay things like gold and silver and minerals and uh, perhaps even produce and livestock and so on and so forth so that they would continue to exist, so that these superpowers wouldn't come and totally annihilate them. And some even say that in the Jordan Valley, uh, it was an area that was rich in bitumen. And bitumen was used for constructing uh, buildings. It was one of the things that was used in the Tower of Babel, if you remember. Some others say that the Jordan Valley was also rich in minerals like copper. And really, this was the time of the Bronze Age. So copper was required just to build bronze and weapons and tools and so on. So this was a pretty important area. And so for whatever reason, this was an important re region uh, for the superpowers of the East. And they had taken possession of this area. Now verse 4 says, the kings of the valley, they were paying their taxes to Kedaleomer. So that's the, 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 the ruler or the leader of the coalition of the kings of the East. And they, these little kings paid these taxes for 12 years. But by the 13th year, these, these local kings, they got tired of these enforced taxes where so much of their resources have to be given to these foreign big kings. And so they got tired of it and they said, you know, we're not going to submit to these foreign superpowers anymore. And so they refused to pay any taxes and they joined forces and they come together in the Valley of Sidim. Now, the Valley of Sidim, if you see that, that's where the uh, that big red star is. And that's just south of where the Dead Sea is at. Now, as these little kings, as they refuse to pay taxes, the superpowers obviously are not going to put up with it. And it ends up starting a war. And it takes about a year for Kedaleomer to rally up his troops as well as all the allies of the east. But then they finally get together and they march their way down. And they have a brilliant military plan. Look at verses 5 through 7. In the 14th year, Kedaleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Zair as far as El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Now, these places that are mentioned here in verses 5 to 7, uh, it's really along a major trade route, and that's east of the Jordan River. Uh, it's the trade route in the Transjordan, you could say. And it was called as the King's Highway. Now, Numbers 2017 uh, makes mention of it. You can look at that later. Uh, that this really this trade route was the king's highway and what this highway did was it connected the north to the south it was a route that came from mesopotamia or that northeastern region all the way down 
to go to Egypt. So you got the, the Euphrates River and all the resources there and trade routes come, trade people coming all the way down and then going to Egypt where Nile's at. So it was a big area of trade. Now just look at the map and so you'll understand what I'm saying. So first there's the, uh, the second map, please. So you see right on top, there's the Rephaim. So they go there first, they defeat the people there. Then they go down to Suzim, they defeat the people there. Then they come all the way down to Emim, that's just right down there, right next to the Dead Sea, all the blue circles. Now what's interesting also is that the people from Rephaim and Suzim and Emim, they're later on treated as one people. In fact, they were considered as giants. Just look at Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11. It says that the Emim, that's the people folk over there, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they were also counted as the Rephaim, that's right up there. Uh, but the Moabites called them the Emim. So really, the, these people came to be just known as one group of people, and they were really giant people, giant warrior kind of people. And so what you must understand is, as the eastern kings are coming down this trade route, they've defeated the big giant warriors. That's what they've done right now. And then after they're done there, they move further south and they go to Zaire, that's at the bottom there where the Horites are. And then from there, they move all the way to El Paran. So they go all the way down and they go back up to Kadesh Barnea and then go up to Hazazon Tamar where the Amorites are. So all along the way, they're defeating everyone there and they even defeat the Amalekites and the Amorites who are there in Kardashian in the Tamar region. And so what you get, as you look at this map, what you're beginning to see is this. These powerful kings of the east, they've essentially defeated everyone in the whole entire Transjordan area. And they've basically defeated the big giants of the area, big giant warriors of the area. And now the local kings of the valley, they have no aid to turn to. I mean, the major trade route, if they wanted to escape, that's all conquered. They can't turn to anyone else because literally they have surrounded them all. And so now the, the kings of the valley are just right there and they're pretty much everything else is defeated and the eastern kings are just kind of closing in on them. Now verses 8 through 10 explain what happened. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedalaomer, king of Elam, titled king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of 
Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the five little kings of the valley, they've banded together. And they've come into this valley of Sidim. And the reason why these local kings have have banded together and chosen this place is because the valley of Sidim was rich in bitumen pits or tar pits. So this would have made it difficult to move around in that area. And them being locals, they would understand the terrain pretty well, even as these eastern powerful kings have come down to attack them. Still, the armies of the east were a formidable force for the local valley kings. And as verse 10 says, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, as they fled, some fell into the bitumen pits. Now the word there for fell, it could also be translated as lowered themselves. So it could also have this idea of that the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah may perhaps even have lowered themselves into the tarpets, meaning they hid themselves in the tarpets. And I kind of lean more towards that way because if it simply meant that they fell and they died in the tarpets, you get to see the king of Sodom again at the end of, cha- at the end of the chapter. So I, I, I lean towards the fact that it possibly, because it can also mean lowered themselves, that they hid themselves in the tarpets whilst others fled to the mountains. Now, in any case, what we see is the kings of the valley are totally defeated. And once the local kings are defeated, they they pillage the cities. And they come to Sodom and Gomorrah and also plunder that whole place. And as part of the plundering, Lot, who is now living in Sodom at this time, also lost all of his possessions and he's also taken as a prisoner of war. Now remember, Lot, when he left from Abram, when he separated from Abram, this looked like a beautiful place to him. And he kept going closer and closer to where we find here now. He's actually living in Sodom. Little did he realize that he would find himself in this mess. The old adage, you know, all that glitters is not gold, you know, seems to ring true even in this instance. So verse 11 and 12, they say, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So that's the background context to the next scene in Abram's life of faith. But you might ask, Why all these details, this detailed information about what is happening, you know, on the global front, on the international scene, simply to set up the context of the next main event in Abram's life? Now, I must confess, I actually struggled for a while to try and understand the significance of it all till I read one commentator, and he was so helpful. Let me just read 
uh, what he says with regards to uh, this particular context or background. Quote, he says, So now let us try to get a grip on the setting or the background that we've just looked at. Here are the newsmakers of the era, the Time magazine, man of the year types, strutting their stuff, their armies on the big international screen. But all this is a subsidiary to the real center of interest, which is Abram in verse 14. The only reason Kedalema, for example, makes the Bible record is because of Abram. Let me say that again. The only reason Kedalema, for example, makes the Bible record is because of Abram. Then he goes on to say, put in right perspective, Kedalema and Amraphel and Washington DC and Putin and Beijing and the Pentagon and the United Nations are merely the background of history. God's premier attention is ever on Abram's family. They're not swallowed up in politics, lost amid scandals or smothered under the helpless diplomacies and summits of governments and nations. Though they don't make People magazine or the evening news, God's mind and his story always seem focused on wherever his people are. So what matters is what happens among Abram's family, end quote. I love that. And really, if you think about it, any place in the Bible, any place in the Bible, you see where there's some mention of world history or things that are happening in the world, some big events that could make international news, it serves only as a background to what God is going to do in and through the lives of his people. And this is so important for us to know as believers. Because there are times when we can feel overwhelmed by the difficulties that face us. Things that are happening locally or internationally. And we think, oh, all this that is happening, this is not helpful to Christendom or my Christian faith. Or when we look at the news and we see the big political names that don't want anything to do with God and they seem to be thriving and those, and those people just seem to be the focus of attention and we think that everything kind of centers around there. That's where the big news is happening. And we may be tempted to think so. I mean, who am I compared to all these people and uh, you know, all this that is going on in the world? We may be tempted to think that, oh, these are the movers and shakers of the world, but uh, you know, I can't do anything anyway. This world is broken. This world is filled with sin, and I've tried to be faithful, and nothing seems to be happening. And sometimes we might even be tempted to think, does it even matter what we do in this world? Let me tell you, brother and sister, it does matter what you and I do in this world. See, the godless movers and shakers 
of this world. They're simply a background to the story of God. It is primarily through his children that God does his work. Yes, God works through unbelievers and through circumstantially and providentially, but they're all just background work to what he will do in and through his people. So regardless of what is happening on the front page of the news, it does matter. What really does matter is when brothers and sisters come together to pray for others who do not know the Lord because the Lord is actively working there. It does matter when we, by God's grace, help each other fight sin in us. It does matter when a Christian husband is spending time with his wife, reminding her of the things of God as she's struggling through things. It does matter when a Christian parent is investing time and energy with teaching their children the things of the Lord. It does matter, these things. What we do even this morning is far more significant than the headline news of this morning. Why? Because God primarily works through his children to further his plans and purposes and make his name known to others. That is where God is centering his work. And in the process, as he works in and through his children, he's also strengthening their faith to see how great and glorious God is. So we've seen the headline news of the day in Genesis 14. The super kings of the east have defeated everyone in the Transjordan and the Jordan Valley and have plundered everything. But this serves only as a backdrop to how God will work out his plan in and through the life of Abram to rescue Lot. And so we come to our second point, or the second scene, that is the rescue in verses 13 through to 16. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. So a fugitive from the defeated side, who perhaps fled to the mountains, has now located Lot's rich uncle, Abram, and he's come and told him everything that has happened. Now it's interesting that here Abram is referred to by his ethnicity. He's referred to as Abram the Hebrew meaning the one who descended from the line of Eber, if you remember the table of nations from Genesis 10, because the descendants of Eber are the Hebrews, or the Hebrews. And this is what then the Israelites would also later be called as, as the Hebrews or the Hebrew people. And you also notice here that 
Abram has also made some allies in the land with Mamre and, their, and his brothers Eshkol and Aner. So Abram's living as a foreigner in the land, so it was good to have allies in the land if you needed help. So if enemies attacked or if you were uh, going for a battle, these allies would be of great support. Now verse 14 says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So here's a description of Abram's militia or his army. He had 318 men, it says, born in his house. So in that time, like the household consisted of not just mum, dad, and children, uh, and uncles and aunts, but it also involved the servants and everyone else. They were all part of the household. So these would have been men that were born to his servants who were also part of his house, or part of his household. And it says about 318 children were born in his household. And he trained them as military men. You could say the, the, the Navy SEALs of Abram. So this was good protection for Abram, who was a wealthy, prosperous man, and uh, with all the possessions that he had and all the people that he had while he was living in this foreign land. But I want you to just think about even this the number of people that would have been part of Abram's household. So it says here, you have 318 men that are born in his household, or born in his house. So obviously, if you think of the parents, you know, add another two lots of 300, that's already 900 people. Uh, add a few siblings here and there. We're talking already more than a thousand people. We haven't even talked about the other servants and the herdsmen and whoever else. So there's a, you know, Abram's household is huge at this point. And it's really almost like Abram already has a little nation under him. By the way, isn't that what God promised Abraham? And some of that is just slowly beginning to happen already. So as the news comes about Lot's capture, you know, Abram could have easily said, oh, Lot, that's right, my nephew. Well, he made his choice. He's the one who decided to separate from me, and now he's just reaping the consequences of his choice. Or he could have said, hey, I have this huge household to take care of and, uh, you know, and lots of ha things happening at my end. I don't have time for a lot. And quite frankly, it would be crazy for me to go and fight these four powerful kings of the east. And even considering they've just annihilated the, you know, defeated everyone in the Transjordan and even the valley kings. But Abram doesn't say that. He doesn't hesitate to go out to rescue Lot. I mean, this is a dangerous operation for Abram. He could have potentially been killed as well as 
all of his militia, and then what would happen to even his household? But Abram's still courageous. And I would say it even shows how Abram has grown in his faith in the Lord. Because if you remember, the Lord said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so he's trusting in God's promises, those promises that were given to him, and that gives him courage as he's trusting God and his promises. And furthermore, as Abram's faith is growing, we also see Abram who is being more and more selfless and his love for others is also growing. Remember in Egypt, Abram was fearful. He was doubting God. And he was mainly concerned about saving his own skin, even putting his wife on the line so that, he, so that number one could be safe. But this is a different Abram. He's trusting God and his promises, and he's not thinking about himself, but he's thinking of his nephew Lot. You see, as Abram's faith is growing, his love and care for others is also growing. Even his love for his foolish, wayward nephew Lot. And so Abram sets out with his 318 well-trained Navy SEALs of the day together with his allies, and they go to rescue Lot from the superpower kings of the East. And they go as far as Dan, and Dan really is, uh, if Hebron's down here, Dan is all the way up north. It's just really the northernmost tip of the land. So he would have traveled uh, a day or two to get there. And Abram knows he's going to face these mighty kings, four mighty kings with their armies, and look at what he does, verse 15. It says, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So picture this, the, the four powerful eastern kings and their armies, their They've, they've plundered that whole area. They're, they're resting at night, maybe even enjoying some of that plunder and loot that they've got. And they're just relaxing at night. And they're, when they're least expecting an attack, Abram, he divides his army and attacks the four kings and their armies by night in stealth from all angles. And these kings are taken by surprise. And Abram defeats them. In fact, those who escape from Abram and his army, Abram even chases them all the way up further north, all the way up to Damascus and beyond. And then verse 16 says, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram brings back all the plunder, including the people that were prisoners of war. He rescues his nephew Lot and his household, as well as all of his possessions. 
And here's a picture of redemption. Where Abram redeems wayward Lot, who went by what he saw, lived in the land of sin, and saved Lot from from the clutches of the enemy kings. And essentially, what you see Abram coming back is as a victorious kingly figure. A guy who has this big, huge group of people under him, who is now this victorious king battling the emperors of the day and is victorious. And he comes back as this victorious kingly figure. It's just, I want you to just think about this for a moment. You know, even with you know, the 318 trained army men and his allies, I mean, Abram had to take out these powerful kings of the east. They're not like little local kings or anything like that. These are huge kings with huge armies. Kings who even defeated the warrior giants. And you must ask, how is it that Abram, who was no king, not even a local lord, how how was he able to be victorious against the great emperors of the day? Because God was with him. Because it's precisely a testimony of the fact that God was truly with Abram. God said, I would bless those who bless you, and I would protect you, and those who come against you, I would also curse, and uh, they would not stand against you. And God promised all this for his own purposes. And Abram believed that, and God is here faithful to keep his promise to Abram, and God was faithful to even protect the lion of the seed, because Abram himself is part of the lion of the seed. And beyond that, God also promised that Abram would be great. And we're beginning to see how that's also fleshing out now. This nobody from Ur of Chaldeans is now like a kingly figure who's just returned after defeating the great emperors of the day. Oh, this incident would have made Abram's name great all over. But this was also pointing to God's faithfulness to keep his promises to Abram. You know, one small application would be this, you know, as as believers, when we courageously face our challenges and our trials by trusting in God's promises, we will also bear testimony to the faithfulness of God. That he keeps us no matter what is happening around us, as we lean on him and trust him, and we will become testimonies of God's faithfulness. Just like now, Abram, in a way, is pointing to God's faithfulness. Now, as the Israelites are listening to this section of the Abram narrative, one thing is also slowly being developed. Even as Abram is you know, from this man who had a lot of possessions and perhaps was seen as a nomad or some kind of shepherd figure so far, where now he's been, we're beginning to see him as a kingly figure. Slowly something is being developed about the seed 
that would come. Abram, who's of the line of the seed, is pointing, or in, in a small way, pointing to, it's, it's a small glimmer, it's a small um, flicker, pointing to, there's some kingly figure somewhere coming. And for those of us, we who have the Bible and understand the Bible to be true, in the pages of Scripture, we know that that ultimate seed and that king is no other than King Jesus. The conquering king of kings who came into this world to redeem lost, wretched, wayward sinners like you and me. To save us from the clutches of sin and death. See, because of his love and his grace, Jesus surrendered his life on the cross of Calvary as payment for wicked sinners like you and me. He died on the cross, defeating sin and death in the works of Satan, and came back to life on the third day to redeem a people to himself. Believers understand that is what Jesus has done. And he's coming again, once again. And when he comes a second time, he's not coming again to lay down his life. Oh no, he's coming to defeat all those who will stand opposed to him and who continue to rebel against him. But he's also coming to gather his people who have put their trust in him. If there's any of you here who is not a Christian, who is not a believer, and if you'd like to know who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus, please come and talk to me at the end of the service or perhaps somebody sitting next to you that you may know to be a Christian, and we'd be happy to tell you about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. For the believers that are gathered here this morning, Let me just say this and close. Let us be encouraged to know that the Lord is working primarily through his people. And that his plans and promises will never be thwarted by anyone. So that should cause us to be even more faithful, to live according to God's ways as we rely on him and as we trust in his promises knowing that God is still in a magnificent way working in and through us, making his name known and furthering his plans. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great God you are and the fact that you would use feeble creatures like us to be instruments to in your hands to further your plan and to further your glory and to make your name known in this world. Help us never to forget that, that this is the reason why you have placed us here on this earth. And when we battle sin and when we go through trials, help us to cling on to your promises this way and help us to continue to be faithful to you. And we pray that as we do that, you would get all the glory and we would have our full satisfaction in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.